2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. So a couple of things. Number one, and we're going to take them in reverse. Paul admonishes us to stand fast, that we would stay firm in the truth, that even as the Galatians are here having those that are coming in and perverting and changing what the gospel is and what it says, that we would stand fast in that, that we would be as the Bereans who would study and compare against the word of God, whether or not those things be true. So we stand fast. We don't change and we don't uh, have further and, and fuller revelation in regard to the simplicity and the authenticity and the authority of the gospel. It is that which saves us. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So we stand firm. We, we, we don't waver in that. But there's this clear principle in verse 13 that God, uh, from the beginning, chose you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. There's two things here. God chose, and there's belief of the truth. Two things at play. We have God's election, his calling, his purpose to, to establish those who will come to faith. But there's also this clear and bona fide offering that we have to exercise faith. God preserves the agency of man that he has created within us. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Speaking of Jesus again, who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So here's this understanding and this idea that God himself would save us and that the method of that salvation was established before the world began. That Jesus Christ, that was always the plan, that God was going to redeem mankind. We see in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden that God established agency in man. They had a choice whether they ate the fruit or they didn't. Now, they sinned. They chose to disobey God. They chose to operate in that, and they, in fact, sinned. And therefore, mankind has been sinful ever since, fashioned of the Adam in the likeness of Adam, in desperate need of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He called us, not according to our works, not according to the favor that we might do. But he called us according to the offering of his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, as we read in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 2, that we are the elect, that we are those who are called according to the foreknowledge of God. And I realize that maybe there are those who would disagree with that theological position, but here it is. We have the word of God telling us that I'm calling and I'm electing and I'm doing it according to the foreknowledge that from the very beginning of the world, before you and I existed, before we had opportunity to make a choice, God knew what we were going to choose. If he's omniscient, if he's all-knowing, he's all-knowing and has been since eternity past. He knew you specifically before he fashioned you. 
And as a result of that, he knew where you would stand. He knew what you would do with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as a result of his understanding, completely and infinite, that we would choose Christ, he called us. There are those who would say that's too simplistic of an explanation. I'm pretty sure that God intended to keep things simple. In Ephesians chapter 3, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 5, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, there's this clear statement of his foreknowledge. He chose us. He knew exactly where we're going to stand, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Just pause there for a moment. Predestination is another thing. All predestination means it is a predetermined plan. It's a predetermined plan. God said, listen, when you put faith in Jesus Christ, the predetermined outcome is that you get to be into the family of God. As many as believed on him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. We read in the first chapter of John. And this has been God's plan since the very beginning, since before the foundation of the world. So the predestination isn't that it's predetermined that you get to be saved and you get to be saved. No, it's a predetermined what is the result of faith in Jesus Christ. What is the result that God has predetermined when we exercise faith in Jesus Christ. Let's see, where do we leave off there? Yes, having predestined, a, verse 6, to the praise and the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in Jesus Christ. So here it is. I'm going to try and sum it up, because it's not that complicated. God knows everything, and he has always known everything since eternity past. He knew what you would do and what I would do when presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knew if we would accept it by faith or if we would reject it by faith. And God, since the, before the beginning of time, said, listen, I'm going to have a predetermined plan because I know that people are going to sin. They're going to need to be redeemed. He understood that. It didn't surprise him when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. So he said, I'm going to have a predetermined plan. We're going to have a, a course of action. And because I know that man is sinful, I know that man can't keep any law or rules. I mean, Adam and Eve literally had one, and they couldn't do it. He said, all I'm going to do is establish a law that will show them, and we talked about this last week, it's going to be their instructor, their schoolmaster, their tutor, to show them their need for me to show them their need for Jesus Christ, my son, who is going to be that redeemer. And if they'll simply trust in him, if they'll accept by faith that he is in fact the redeemer, confess with the, believe in their heart, confess with their mouth, as we read in Romans chapter 10, they'll be saved. They'll be adopted into my family. They will leave enmity and become favorable in their relationship with me. It's that simple. The balancing mechanism throughout Scripture is the foreknowledge of God, His omniscience, His sovereignty in predetermining a plan of action. 
We just have to accept it by faith. Not, not, not a theological position or a, a school of thought, but his word and what it says. He continues on as we look at this, and, and we talk about the purpose. Paul begins to clarify grace to these churches in Galatia. And I think that it bears some warrants some discussion on our part because grace has a as a term in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, has a wide range of meaning. Right? It doesn't simply mean uh, just favor, unmerited favor with God. It means more than that. It means his desire and power to do what he's called us to do. In this case, as we read it here in this portion of Galatians, that he's called us into the grace of Christ, it simply means that he's called us into a favorable position, a favorable relationship with him. We understand that all of mankind is at enmity. They are enemies of God. Apart from Jesus Christ, that is our natural position. We're his enemies. Whether we try to please him or not, we are against him and not for him. And the Bible is clear about that. And so when we ex exercise faith in Jesus Christ, we change that relationship, that position changes. No longer are we enemies, but we are adopted into his family. We are brought into this familial family relationship where we are the sons of God. We are his children. In Romans chapter 5, if you'll turn there with me, Romans chapter 5, Verses 1 and 2 says, therefore, being justified by faith. And, and just pause there. How, do we, how are we declared righteous by God? Well, through faith. Clear and simple statement. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We are no longer enemies, but we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We've entered into this favorable position and we enjoy the hope that is associated with it. The hope of this redemption where our heavenly position and our earthly position at some point come together and they're one and the same. We are unaffected any longer by the corruption of sin. We look forward to that. But we have access into this favorable position, into this right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, in Acts chapter 15, as Paul uh, is further discussing with the council there in Jerusalem, this, this question of whether or not somebody would have to be circumcised to be saved. We read in verses 10 through 11 in Acts chapter 15. He says, Now, therefore, why tempt you, God, to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Now, here's the thing. There's, there's a statement in there that the law itself, as we read in Galatians last week, the law itself was not designed to save anyone. That was never its purpose. That wasn't its intent. That's not how God established that to be. But he says that we are saved just as they are saved. The nation of Israel couldn't keep it. The, the Jews were not a righteous people. They were God's example people, and they have a special place going forward with God. But they weren't a righteous people. We look throughout, we see their history recorded in Scripture. They were sinful just like we are. How did they come to faith? 
Well, the same way that Abraham, the father of the Jews, the first Jew who was given the sign, the covenant sign of circumcision was saved. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. His faith was imputed, as the word of God says, was counted, was his righteousness. How did those Jews come to faith? Well, the same way that the Gentiles come to faith. That's what Peter, that's what Paul is saying here. We came to faith not because we obeyed the law perfectly or because we kept it. That's works. He says, no, we came to faith. We were saved because we believed, because we trusted, because we operated in faith that this is what God has done. He's fulfilled everything necessary. That's how we enter into that favorable position. That's how we come to a right relationship with God. I can go through and do all the things that I feel would be declared righteous by God. But as we read in the Old Testament, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They don't amount to anything. But what Jesus Christ has done is made himself to be sin so that God could declare us righteous. That he might remain just. He's punished sin. that had to be dealt with. But he's also the justifier, the one that gets to declare us sinless. Grace is the only gospel. He, did, he makes that statement in verse 7 of Galatians chapter 1. He says, you've left this grace, this favorable position that you are in with God, which is not another gospel. He says, it is not another gospel, but there are some that trouble you would pervert it. Grace is the only gospel. In Romans chapter 11, if you'll turn there with me, Romans chapter 11, let's look at verse 6. Now here in this chapter, Paul is writing about the Jews and his desire. Paul wants to see the nation of Israel come to faith. But here in this, this chapter, he's discussing this relationship between the law and works and grace and salvation. And this is what he says. He makes this clear statement. And if by grace, right, if we're saved by grace, then it is no more of works. It doesn't matter about whether we've kept the law or not. Then no more by works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. If I go to work, I'm, I've come to that understanding, and when we all would, that I'm going to trade my time, my effort, my skills for the money that we've agreed on you're going to give me. Right? I earn a wage. If my salvation is linked to my effort and what I'm doing, then all of a sudden my salvation is a wage. It's something that I've earned, something that God owes me as a result of some agreement. The covenant that all the covenants that God has ever established with mankind had nothing to do with what we were going to do. They illustrated our inability to keep those covenants. They illustrated our desperate need for him. And they also illustrated the finished and complete and fulfilled work of Jesus Christ on the cross. All of the Old Testament being written for our example that we would understand what Jesus came and did and finished. He continues in that same word, but if it be of works and it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. Right? If we're saved by works, then we're not saved by grace, and if we're saved by grace, then we can't be saved by works. That's the simple statement of Romans eleven six. Grace is the gospel. Is what God has done is being brought to that favorable 
favorable position as God has prescribed. In Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Brother, in my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul has the desire to see his fellow Jews come to faith in Jesus Christ. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They've missed the point is what Paul is saying. They've become so zealous about keeping the law and doing all those quote-unquote righteous things that they've missed the simplicity of Jesus Christ being the promised Savior. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves into the righteousness of God. Now, there's a clear understanding in Scripture that the righteousness that is required for you and I to be saved is equal to that of God's. That is the standard of righteousness, perfection. And only God was perfect, is perfect, sorry. He continues to be perfect and will always continue to be perfect. That is the standard of righteousness. But here is the nation of Israel, and they said, listen, we're going to establish this method of righteousness, and, and, and all it means is that we keep these particular rules. If we can do this, and we'll be right, we'll be holy, we'll be spiritual, nothing has changed. The Gentiles were doing exactly the same thing. They were worshiping false gods. They were doing the same things as the nation of Israel. The world today does the same thing and seeks to establish what righteousness is apart from what God has declared it to be. And so they go around trying to establish their own righteousness. Well, if I can just get these things in order, if I can get that thing taken care of, if I can go to church on Sundays and pay my tithe and pray and read my Bible and do all these things, then I'll be righteous. Listen, you can read your Bible till, you're, till you go blind. And it will not necessarily bring about salvation. It is faith in what God has done in Jesus Christ alone. He continues on. They have a zeal for God, right? They're, they're, they want to serve him, but not according to knowledge. Verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness have tried to establish their own, and they have not submitted themselves into the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. In other words, God draws a line in the sand. He says, listen, you can do this. You can keep this perfectly, which you already haven't. You've already failed. Or, And he tells us that in the very beginning, right? He doesn't set us up for failure like, hey, maybe you could do this. No, he makes it very clear. You got to keep the law perfectly, which you've already broken, or you have to trust Christ. He makes the gospel that simple. He makes it that clear that we would stand there before and there would be no question for you and I. Now, people will reject it for all kinds of reasons because they've got these other means of righteousness that they're really holding on to. They don't want to see, as Jesus said in John chapter 3, that their works that they're doing are wrought in darkness. They might be good things. They might be quote-unquote good people. But they're still wrought in darkness. Their righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They're garbage. Just like mine were. Just like yours are, apart from Jesus Christ. Now, in Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Right? Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. For us that believe, that's, that's it. He is he's it. We are declared to be righteous in him. No man is justified or made righteous by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. 
even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Jesus Christ, not by the works of the law, for the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. You like how Paul said it three ways, exactly the same thing? You are not justified. You are not made righteous. You're not saved by your obedience to the law, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul clarifies this grace. We come into this favorable position, and it's not by works, it's not by anything that we do, but it's simply by our faith in Jesus Christ. And as by faith in Jesus Christ, we receive that salvation that he has promised, that he has purposed to give mankind since the beginning of time. And it's always been by faith. Now, there are those that are perverting the gospel. That word perverting simply means to twist or to turn around. We've all had those conversations where you're talking to somebody and they're really clever. I'm not very clever, right? So you have this conversation and they just take what you say and they twist it around and then you're like, no, 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 that's not what I said. And over and over, you just, you feel defeated in the end, right? It's convincing. And that's what's exactly what is happening here, that there are those who are taking the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the simplicity of the gospel, and they're turning it all around. So much so, and so effectively so, that there are those, even within these churches, who are sincerely saved, but are being deceived. And that's what Paul is saying. Oh, I marvel that you're so soon leaving Jesus Christ, that you would go and turn again into some other work. You were saved from that. In 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, but there were false prophets also among the people. That is a true statement then, and it's a true statement now. And we may have some discussion about what a prophet equals today. However, there are those who are professing to be those representatives of God, whatever shape or form that may take, and it's false. There were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. Just keep that in mind. There are false teachers today. We're surrounded by them. Who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. A heresy is simply a false teaching. It's a perversion of truth. That's what it means. They're going to say, this is what the Word of God says, and they'll take all these things, and they may, they may take them out of context, whatever, whatever it may be, and it looks convincing. There's a little bit of truth there. But in the end, it's not true. And it's going to, it's going to corrupt Principles of Scripture that God has established as unnegotiable things that have to be true. They bring in these damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways. That word pernicious means uh, destructive. By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingers not, and their damnation slumbers not. They make merchandise of people. They're taking advantage. And I don't know what their motives are. The Bible gives us lots of different motives that they might they might have in Matthew chapter 7. We, we studied through that, and when we looked at that, and we see these false teachers, there are lots of characteristics, and there are some, some through the Old Testament and the New Testament, consistencies in those things. We can talk about that offline, but here's the thing, right? There are those that are going to come in, they're going to pervert the gospel. 
And as we look and we see that there are those even within the body of Christ that may, without realizing it, they may be sincerely mistaken. They're sincere. may not be their intention, but they are. And we look at Peter as an example. We talked about it last week, that here he is, and he's eating with the Gentiles, but then as soon as some other Jews show up, they say, oh, wait a minute, I got to I gotta toe that line that we as Jews have, right? We don't eat with Gentiles. And so he would laugh, and he would go and eat with the Jews, and Paul says, listen, I'm going to address it. He says, I call them out on it. Because it's a perversion of the gospel. It's a twisting, right? There is one body. We've talked about this a great extent. There is one body of Christ, Jew and Gentile, coming together. There's no middle wall of partition anymore between us. We are the people of God, the church, today. That's it. And you're either saved or you're not saved. Those are the two classes of people that exist today, saved and not saved. Children of God, not children of God. Born again, not born again. Some of the broader categories of things that we're going to encounter with these false teachers, and, and I base this upon what we see throughout Scripture, is, and we've talked about it this morning, different standard of righteousness. You're going to encounter that throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. We encounter it today. And what I mean by a different standard of righteousness is somewhere in there, we establish this work, this thing, this effort that we have to do as a standard of righteousness. And with absent of that, even faith in Jesus Christ won't save us. Listen, I grew up in a Mormon household, and I understand that there is a different standard of righteousness. It says you are saved by grace through faith after all that you can do. Right, that Jesus Christ, that's what it says in, in the Book of Mormon, Jesus Christ and his sacrifice doesn't fulfill the righteousness of God. It's that plus whatever you have to bring to the table. Which is hopeless when we understand what God has said, that you are not righteous, that your righteousnesses don't add up. So different righteousness or multiple methods, or you could have phrased this in any way, different, <laughs> any way shape, or form. Uh, you have those who will say, well, all religion is just different rivers leading to the same ocean. That kind of philosophy, right? That, that if we just do this over here, we're good people, we're right. I mean, it's establishing a whole other righteousness. That's sort of a foundational principle, but multiple methods. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Not any faith in anything else, not any... Right, only through him. So there may there may be a, a purporting of multiple methods. And sadly, this is something that has become somewhat pervasive in American Christianity. There may be a different God completely, not just a different method, but a different God completely. It may reject Christianity. That's not an appropriate method, but this method over here is. This God is. Different God. Or no God at all which is an interesting concept because when we understand that, right, it takes a lot of faith to be an atheist. I am trusting that I am completely right and that I know better than the creator of the universe. I am my own God. It is a different gospel, et cetera, et cetera. There may be other things, but primarily those are the big four that, we are, that we're going to encounter. These perversions are going to be accompanied by things that make them really, really appealing. Now, maybe for you and I as believers, it would hopefully be less appealing. But here's those in Galatia, those that Paul is writing to, and they're falling to some of these deceptions. 
So we might find, and it's not up here, so you're going to have to just write quickly, those of you who like to take notes, but we might find signs and wonders accompanying some of these perversions of the gospel. Matthew chapter 24, verse 24. These false prophets, these false Christs, these things that are going to promote other gospels, there will be some signs and wonders. Looks good. Here are the disciples, the apostles, they're doing signs and wonders, and it's a confirmation of the veracity of Jesus Christ and him calling them to do what they're doing. The Bible tells you and I as believers that we need to test every spirit. Just because we see it uh, doesn't equal believing and shouldn't. What is it? How does it jive with what God has said in his word? Second, there may be bits of truth in it interspersed throughout. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Adam and Eve were deceived not by a complete and utter lie, but with bits of truth. Those most crafty deceptions of the gospel, those most crafty perversions are those which take form like we read about here in Galatians. Yeah, circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God made with his people. If you're not circumcised, you can't be one of his people. There's a little bit of truth there. That was a sign, and that was a covenant sign that God made with Abraham. But Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. Abraham's righteousness wasn't equated with his circumcision. It was equated with his faith. So there might be a little bit of truth in it. False interpretation of the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 2.17, and I realize I'm moving fast, but I want you to study these on your own because you need to be familiar with them. So write them down. Take them home. Let it be your homework. 2 Corinthians 2.17, false interpretation of the Word of God. Now, interpretation is simply that this is what it says, this is what it means. Now, there might be multiple applications. The Word of God is going to apply to you and I differently in our walk and our position with God at that very moment, things that He is working in us and through us at that time. However, the truth of what God says will be unchanging. It doesn't change. but there will be false interpretations of the Word of God. And what we'll find is that when they encounter those, it's going to compound with those bits of truth. We're going to take all these things, and I can prove up any false position that I choose to by simply picking verses out of their context. This is divorcing them from what God has said in its entirety. The way we combat that is to know the full counsel of God's Word and to take what they're saying, those bits of truth, and to weigh them against the Scripture. How does that affect the gospel? What else does that do? Does that change the character and the nature of God as he's clearly revealed himself? We're going to find as well this elevation of new revelation. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. This elevation of new revelation. God, in the end of his word, we're going to talk about this as we close this morning. God, at the end of his word, closed his word. So we're done. New revelation doesn't happen anymore. I've given you everything that is necessary to be saved. I've given you everything necessary for your hope and looking forward to all of those things are in the Word of God. Don't add to it. Don't take it. Don't take away from it. But there are those who will say, but we have this new revelation or this restoration of a lost truth that God has somehow revealed to me. And last, we're going to find poor fruit. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, Jesus said, you're going to know false teachers by their fruits. Because what comes out of it is this fulfilling of the lust of the flesh, and so therefore the fruit is corrupt. 
Now, listen, we understand that within the church, there are those that struggle with sin. Paul himself in, in Romans chapter 7 said, I struggle with sin. We are going to struggle with sin. But it isn't our practice. It isn't what we pursue. It isn't what we condone. It's a struggle because we're trying to overcome. We're asking God to, to sanctify us, make me like your son. Well, I'm not comfortable in this, Lord. There's a different fruit at play there. There's a severe consequence related to perverting the gospel. In fact, it's severe enough that Paul would state it twice. He says in verses 8 and 9, but though we or an angel from heaven, so anyone or anything, we can sum it up that way, preach any gospel unto you, then that which has been preached, let him be accursed. And in the Greek word, that is the Greek term anathema. That's all what it means, cursed. It's a big deal. And he says again, as we said before in verse 9, so I say I now again, if any man preach any gospel unto you, then that you have received, let him be accursed. Most of the time, if God takes the time to say something more than once, we should pay attention. Paul is here telling the Galatians, listen, there is a problem with what these guys are doing, and let's let's just make it abundantly clear that this is the consequence. That they are, whether they realize it or not, they are leading people astray, and the consequence for that is severe. In Romans chapter, excuse me, Revelation chapter 22, Revelation 22, here at the end of the Word of God, in the last book, in some of the last chapters, in some of the last verses, God takes the time to clarify for you and I who are yet to come at this point in, in history when it was written that he's done, that revelation is finished. He says in Revelation 22, verses 18 through 19, For I testify unto every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Right, Whether it's the book of Revelation or whether it's the entire word of God, I think it's the entire word of God. Uh, it can be interpreted either way. The same truth is at play. Right? If anyone adds to this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away this part, his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. It's serious. God said, listen, I'm done. It's finished. I've closed the door on new revelation. I've closed the door on establishing any other means of righteousness. I've already told you what that is. I told you what I did to accomplish that for you. I told you what you have to do. This is it. You trust in Jesus Christ. Simple. There's not a restoration. There's not a clarification. The only thing that it can be, if it isn't what God has revealed in the Word of God, is a false gospel. And if you take the time to study and look at what God has preserved in his word, there was never anything lost, which is a big claim that some will make. It's what our Mormon neighbors, friends, and family make, that something was lost. So therefore, God had to have this new prophet who would re reestablish the truths of the gospel that were lost. They're adding to the word of God. And it's a serious offense. Now, does that mean that they are past saving? Absolutely not. 
God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance, that they would all be saved. 2 Peter 3, 9. He's long-suffering gospel because he's not willing that they would perish. We need to be engaged in that. Now, it might be appealing. These things may be appealing. Uh, good people who are sincerely deceived can further the falsehood they themselves are in bondage to. I mean, they're, they're sincere in their, in their belief. They're just sincerely wrong. And we have to understand that. We stand against them in loving, but in no uncertain terms. And we combat the error with the truth. Just as we read in John 17, 17, sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. We use the word of God as that foundation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 through 4, Paul says, But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve with his subtlety, so your minds could be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him. In other words, there might be those who come along like the serpent who tricked Eve, and they might beguile you. They might overcome you with their falsehoods, with their persuasion, with their charisma, whatever it may be, with their signs and wonders, all of those things. And you might put up with it. You might condone it. You might overlook it, or you might miss the fact that it is, in fact, a false gospel. Paul expresses concerns for the church in Corinth of that very thing. Now, I'm convinced that the church in America, the body of Christ in America, has fallen prey to this very thing. But by and large, we have these who would creep in, and there are nuggets and tidbits of truth, and they're all, but they're, it's corrupted by all these other things. He continues on, and I want to jump down to verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. They look like, they sound like, there's a little bit of truth there. It feels like, yeah, they should be part of the body of Christ. They're the wolves in sheep's clothing that Jesus talks about, right? They look like sheep, they sound like sheep, but they destroy the flock. He's saying the same thing here. And he says in verse 14, And no marvel, it's not a surprise to us, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Right? He looks good. He sounds persuasive. He deceived Eve. Here's all this. Well, you'll be made wise. You'll know good and evil, just like God does. Sounds like a good thing. He transforms himself into an angel of light. Everywhere in Scripture that you see somebody encountering an angel... Not everywhere. I can't say everywhere. But many places that you find people encountering angels in Scripture, what do they do? They fall down. They try to worship them. When John sees the angels there in Revelation, he falls down. And they're, and they're quick to say, no, 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 you don't worship us. But you know who's not? Satan is content to say, no, no, good job. You worship me, you worship my falsehoods, whatever it may be. I know, I, yeah, I look like an angel of light. That's because I am an angel of light. That's right. You got, you know, you nailed it. He's happy to let us mire in that deception. Therefore, he says in verse 15, it is no great thing if his ministers, 
right? Those who would appear to be these false teachers, these false apostles, would also be transformed into ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works, right? This sounds good. It looks good. And unless we take the the time to know the word of God so that we can weed through the deceptions and the falsehoods, we have to know truth to be able to identify error. And that's what the Bereans were noble for because they took the time to do that. And here it was Paul the apostle that they were proving, right? Paul showed up today. He'd be like, oh yeah, I read all your books, man. Come on in. And we're quick to do that today. I read all your books. Come on in. But we didn't take the time to see if those books that were written by this new apostle, this new guy, were in fact in accordance with the word of God. It may be appealing. It may look good. We have to understand that, that we have to be those who would stand against it. And it doesn't matter if it's me or anyone that might stand in this pulpit or any other pulpit or that you might hear on the radio or that they wrote a book. You have to vet it against the Word of God. You, as a believer, a disciple of Jesus Christ, are responsible for what you allow in. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Prove all things and hold fast that which is good. That's a personal admonition. I can't do it for you. I'll do my best to not preach error. But I'll tell you that in the years of doing this, there are things that I've changed my mind about because what I believe was not in accordance with the word of God. And I had to change my thinking because God is, let every man be found a liar, but God is true. We read in the book of Romans. So listen, I might get it wrong. And if I get it wrong, you need to call me on it. He says in, in verse 10, and we're getting close here this morning. Listen, I have to speak until it's time for food. So <laughs> almost time for food. We've got some worship too. So uh, verse 10, Paul says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. I don't want you to miss what Paul is saying. The argument is that these people might have is with the Creator. Right? If somebody's going to say, because God has revealed His Word, and because He's preserved His Word, those who would oppose it have to persuade God that He is wrong, that they, in fact, know more than He does. Their argument is with Him. And that's what Paul is saying. Do I now persuade God? Right? Am I here trying to convince him that what I am preaching is somehow superior and right, and he got it wrong? No, and, and what we're going to find through the rest of this as we talk about it next week, the origin of the gospel, in fact, no, it came directly from God. And Paul is only preaching what God said. But that's next week. What he's saying is that, listen, their argument is with him. They're trying to persuade him. They're trying to say, listen, we're gods, we're just as equal as you, and we got a better plan. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? If you grew up in Mormonism like me, that sounds really familiar. Acts chapter 9, turn there with me. Acts chapter 9. Now, we all know, and we talked about last week, maybe we don't all know, but Paul used to have another name. His name was Saul, and when we read about him in the book of Acts, in the initial chapters, the first several chapters of the book of Acts, that's how we find him. 
And Saul is a guy who is persecuting the church of Christ. He's out there getting letters to, to put to death those who would be disciples of Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. This is the same guy that wrote the book of Galatians. This is Paul. Before he is saved, before he's born again, he's got a zeal, but not according to knowledge. Just like he said, when he's writing about the Jews, he's writing from personal experience in some respect, right? Because he was a Jew that was zealous for God. But he didn't have knowledge. He didn't understand. He missed Jesus Christ. And he says, and he desired of the high priest letters to Damascus, to the synagogue, that if he found any of this way, in other words, any Christians, whether they were men or women, he didn't care, he's going to put them all to death, that they would be bound and brought into Jerusalem. Right? So Paul, here he is, he's seeking man's authority, seeking man's authority. In other words, he's saying that, that man, as before, when he was Saul, man knew better than God. And even though God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the world, even though he has established a standard of righteousness that we can't, that, that we were, was not designed for us to keep, but that was designed to point us toward the Messiah, Jesus Christ, his son, that he had promised since the very beginning, that he had purposed since before time began to be the savior of the world, that we know better, that man knows better. And so therefore I'm seeking the authority of man to do these things in man's name. They are putting themselves in the place of God. And that's what Paul was doing when he was Saul. And he understood that. He understood that he was there trying to persuade God. He asked the question here in Galatians rhetorically. Because for you and I, no, we don't persuade God. He's the one that is giving us truth. We don't have to correct him because he's never wrong. So we ask the question, if I do I do I persuade men or do I persuade God? Right? We're trying to persuade men. We're trying to share with them the truth that God has given us, just as Paul is doing. Or do I seek to please men? Right? To be acceptable and to, to bring them honor and glory. Now that's not our position as believers. I want to close this morning by talking about pleasing God and letting that be. Our, our final application this morning. Because as believers, as disciples of Christ, as his people, that is our purpose. Now, in Colossians chapter 3, and there's many places that we could go, but Colossians chapter 3 is a relatively easy one, and we're not going to read the whole thing. I want to give you an outline of the chapter very quickly. If you'll turn to Colossians chapter 3 before we make this final application. In the first four verses of the book of Colossians, or excuse me, of Colossians chapter 3, Paul gives us this description of our position, right? That we are justified, that we are the people of God, and that is sure and unchanging. That when we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved. Right, that's our position. He begins with that. Therefore, as a result of the position that we have, of the relationship that we have, and the calling that God has given you and I to reflect Him to the world around us, to make Him known, 
He says, change your clothes. Right, so our son is getting married. I don't remember this being as big of a deal with our daughter who got married, but because it was a far less formal event. It was during COVID, so it was a small wedding. It's going to be a small wedding anyway, all those things. But our son's getting married in May, and what we're wearing is a thing. And I, it, I'm not enjoying the thing, right? It's not my thing. But the clothes have to be appropriate. What people see on the outside has to match. It's cohesive. It's the whole formal thing. And that's fine. I'm happy to do it. Might complain about it to you guys, but don't tell anybody, okay? God says the same thing to you and I. The clothes that you're wearing need to be appropriate. They need to be a reflection of what's on the inside. And he takes the time... And I want to read a few verses here, and he describes the clothes that we take off, the dirty, junky, holy, the clothes, the clothes that I want to wear to the wedding. Take those off. And he says, put on these clothes. Put on garments that are matching with the righteousness and the declaration of your justification that you've received from Jesus Christ. Let's begin in verse 5 of Colossians 3. Mortify, which means kill, put to death. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, and these, this is a list, as it were, of the clothes. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience, in the which also you walked some time when you lived in them. Right? They're comfortable. Got a pair of jeans, it's got holes in it, all those things. Those are the comfortable ones, right? They're broken in. We like to wear those jeans. Paul is telling us we used to be like that. We walked in that way. We were comfortable wearing those kinds of clothes. But it's an inappropriate attire today, right? There's holes in places there ought not to be holes. Don't wear them anymore. Continues in verse 8, but now. Also put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. And then he tells us what clothes we ought to put on, those things that should attire us, that would help confirm to the world around us our position in respect to Jesus Christ. We have put on the new man in verse 10, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Whether there is neither, where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect, as God's people, put on, therefore, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing, or putting up with, one another and forgiving one another. If any man has a quarrel against you, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. And above all things, put on charity or love, which is the bond of perf perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. All of this, and I, want, I don't want you to miss this, all of this is rooted in the Word of God. We talked about this last week, that it is foundational. Move through as we want to understand the gospel is foundational. The word of God is the gospel. 
He says in verse 16, let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. All that means, and it's a simple statement, but all it means is that the word of God informs us and it corrects us, not us imposing our understanding on it. I don't persuade God, but God through his word interacting in my life by quickening and enlightenment of the Holy Spirit as Jesus talks about in John 14, 15, not 15, but 16. It instructs me. Hey, you got some holes in those jeans, man. Let's let's tidy that up. Let's put that off. And let's put on these fresh jeans that represent me to the world around you. We take every thought captive to the mind of Christ. And he concludes this in the last few verses, verses 23 and 24. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily, completely, as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward and of the inheritance, for you shall serve the Lord. We shall serve the Lord. Now, again, that, that can be homework. I realize that's a very quick run-through. But hopefully it gives us an illustration that we can build an application from. When we talk about pleasing God, this is the admonition that Paul is giving to the church there in Galatia and to you and I, that we would please God, not men. That here are these Judaizers that are coming in, and just because they have an opinion, even it's contrary to the gospel, we don't worry about pleasing them and being acceptable before them. We're worried about pleasing God and bringing Him honor. Pleasing man is going to exhaust you, and I'll just tell you that you will never please everyone. We, all, we hear that all the time, but it's 100% true. And to be honest, and to be clear, the more we try to please the Lord, the less we're going to likely please man. The reason it exhausts us is because it's not what we were designed to do. We were designed, as we read in Revelation chapter 4, to please God. And it's really not that hard to please God by comparison to trying to please man. It's consistent with our created purpose. Not only that, but God gave us everything necessary. He gave us the enlightenment and the understanding of the Holy Spirit. He gave us his word. He said, this is how you can please me. He made it really easy. First Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll tell you that before we make this application, this is not exhaustive. But there are other ways that we may please the Lord, but here are a couple of ways, things that we can practice that will help lay a foundation of pleasing God throughout our life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that you have, as you have received of us, how you ought to walk or how you should conduct yourself, how you should please God and to please God. So you would abound more and more, for you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Now, I want to pause there for a moment. When we talk about the commandments given to us by the Lord Jesus, that we would please him. In, the, in Galatians, there are some specific things. When Paul and his 
crew went over to Jerusalem to talk with the disciples, the apostles, and say, hey, what about this circumcision problem? They were given a few things. Listen, no, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. That's contrary to the gospel. They all agreed about that. But here's some things that we need to do. We need to show charity. We need to uh, take care of the poor. Right? There's some things that they laid out there for them to do. These are ways that we can minister in the name of Jesus Christ to the world around us. That wasn't exactly the commands that were being given. It's not exactly in reference to that. However, they are applicable. Things that we can do as a church, as the body of Christ, that would engage the world around us. God told his people, he told you and I, that we need to be holy as he is holy. He's declared us to be so, and that means that we need to operate and conduct ourselves, walk in a manner that is consistent with the profession of faith that we've made. Jesus said, if you love me, in John 14, 15, keep my commandments. We're not talking about works that earn our favor or our salvation, but what we're talking about is a reciprocation, a giving back of the love that God has shown us. God showed us his love in Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. And if we want to know how we show him that love back, how we might please him, we keep his commandments. And I'll just, I was just going to say, and, I'll, and I just want to add to that, which you guys should all say, what about Revelation 22? Don't, you know. <laughs> but what I want to add to that is that when we keep his commandments, <clears throat> as I forgot what I was going to say now, so it doesn't matter. Let's continue on in 1 Thessalonians 4. Maybe it'll come back. I probably won't. It's probably better that I don't say it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Right? We know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of uh, inordinate desire or concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. Right? There is there's a difference. There should be a difference. That old man, right? we don't look like that anymore. We have the right clothes on. We're dressed, we're dressed to the nines. Right, we're, we're looking good over here. There's a difference in what comes out on the outside. The abundance of the heart is different. And Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth will speak. We'll conduct ourselves consistently with that profession of faith. He says, he continues on, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter because the Lord is the avenger of all as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness, unto a pursuit of keeping his word, into a pursuit of walking in obedience. And when we blow it, into a pursuit of humbling ourselves and owning up to that, so that we might represent him as accurately as we can. In Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, verse 6, as the author of Hebrews, who I, I believe is Paul, is writing about faith, and he takes the time to define faith and all of those things. He says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It is impossible to please God without 
faith, without trust in him. And all that means is that what he has given in his, in his word and in his spirit, that's what I trust. And I'm going to stand on that completely and wholly and alone. Anything that comes to bear, any gospel that I may encounter, any person that may decide to share with me something has to be taken there. And I trust God's word above all else. I trust the instruction, the inspiration of his Holy Spirit above all else. I'm going to walk in trust. That also means that when I choose to live in a way that wouldn't do things that he's told me not to do, and that I would do things that he has commanded me to do, but I'm simply trusting him. I'm not establishing a righteousness. I'm not demanding that of anyone else, but I'm trusting him. We want to please God. We have to establish it upon faith, upon trust. We'll talk more about the origin of the gospel next week, but let's close in prayer and then we'll worship. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. I praise you for the words that you have given us this morning. And God, I pray that if there's anything that I've said that is unclear or that is incorrect, Lord, that you would instruct us and reprove me of those things. We want to represent you and your gospel, your word, accurately and correctly. God, may we not be those who would sow any confusion, but God, that we would clearly be those who would represent your redemptive purpose that's existed since time before time began. We praise you, Lord, that in your Son, Jesus Christ, everything was finished and accomplished. And that in the simplicity of the gospel that you have revealed and preserved throughout all of history in your word, that there is nothing left for us to do. That as Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. And that was a declarative statement of the completeness of his offering. I praise you, Lord, for your word that makes it clear that by faith and that alone in your son and in him alone, that we receive that gift of salvation and that we are declared righteous, that we are justified and that nothing can change that. God, as we praise you this morning, as we have opportunity to worship, I pray that it would be a result of the truths that we've heard this morning and our desire to give thanks and to rejoice at all that you've done and finished. We ask, Lord, and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.